After the 9-11 attack, as New York was recovering, the famous Brooklyn Tabernacle Church was holding four funerals for its members that had lost their lives in the Twin Towers. But one of the funerals was for a police officer. And Mayor Rudy Giuliani was present at this funeral, and he had been asked by family members to say a few words. And what he ended up saying was both powerful and spot on, in my opinion. Look up here on the screen. He said, you know, people, I've learned something through all of this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS were heading up into it, do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save? I wonder what percentage are whites up there? How many Jews are there? Let's see, are these people making $400,000 a year or $24,000? He said, no, when you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses out first? Not exactly. And then he said rather profoundly, I confess, I haven't always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do it. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. And I think Giuliani was onto something that day. I think New York City was onto something that day. I think that America found something that day. We found a unity that we didn't think we have, but we found a dropping down of some of the barriers and boundaries that we had put up that kept us from other people that, that was life-giving on that day. You know, before 9-11, plenty of the pundits were calling America soft. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. They were saying that we weren't the same nation that we were during World War II, we weren't the same nation during World War I, that we had it way too easy in our comfort-based, entitlement-ridden society, that we were weak. But as we all know, on 9-11, we proved them wrong. Our nation rallied, our nation pulled together, our nation focused. And probably most touching for me as a pastor, and we'll get to this in just a second for us as a church, our nation demonstrated unity. Unity that quite frankly wasn't seen on September 10th, but was seen almost immediately on September 11th. Unity that, that lasted for a few days, weeks, months, even a few years depending on who you talk to, and is a unity that was palpable to us as we went through this together as a nation. And folks, when you latch on to that, and as we remember that today, 10 years later, I think there's a powerful lesson for you and me when it comes to grace and the church. In short, if a nation of some 300 million people can put aside differences and rally in such a way that demonstrates true heartfelt unity, then surely the Christian church can do that all the time. Amen? I mean, that's what I want us to latch on today. This is simply it. That 10 years ago, our nation, in response to tragedy, demonstrated a unity that most people sensed and felt. And yet the lesson for you and me as a church is that God calls us to do that all the time, anywhere, everywhere, every day, not just in response to tragedy, but listen, because of who we are. You know, it's interesting. Jesus had the opportunity toward the end of his life and stay on this earth to pray one last prayer, one final important thing for his followers and well for everybody else who would become followers of him as they heard about his death and his resurrection from the dead. And it's fascinating. In this prayer, he, he didn't pray for happiness or joy. He didn't pray for vocational security. He didn't pray for health and healing. He didn't even pray for spiritual intimacy all things that you and I pray for today and kind of make the top five of our prayer list, not bad things to pray, certainly good things to pray for. 
It's just that they didn't make Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, one of the last prayers he prayed. No, Jesus' last prayer was for something that most of us would have never guessed. It was not something that we usually think about very often. Look at John 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus' high priestly prayer shortly before his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. See if you can pick up on what he's praying for. Look up here on the screen. He says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, meaning the disciples, but for those who also will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know you did send me and did love them, even as you did love me. You'd have to be completely dense, wouldn't you, to, 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 to miss what Jesus is saying here. I, I mean, it's so clear. He's praying for unity, for oneness, for his followers, not just the ones in the first century, but for all followers, or followers that would come for every generation until he would return a second time. And the question that I want you and I to wrestle with right now is, does that surprise you? Does that surprise you at all? Quite frankly, it does me a little bit. I mean, if I was an observer back then in the first century and I knew Jesus had one last shot at prayer, they had one last shot to pray one thing for all followers, I would have guessed world peace. I would have guessed fellowship and intimacy. I would have guessed revival. I would have guessed healing. I would have guessed something, but I'm not sure I would have latched initially onto unity. And it's something that Bible experts point out, that there's something very revealing in this, something very life-giving for you and me when we realize what Jesus is doing here. And so the question I hope we're wrestling with right now is, well, what's the big deal about unity? I mean, why this emphasis on oneness that Jesus gives us here? Or to put it more in line with 9-11, what did Giuliani latch on to during the aftermath of 9-11 that made him so sensitive to this thing called unity? What might the church learn from what we saw in New York City as everybody rallied in response to 9-11? Three things I want to share with you in our time remaining this morning. Three things that another prayer, this one of Paul the Apostle, can teach us about the why and what of unity. And here's the first thing. Look up here on the screen. And that is that unity is absolutely central to God's will for his followers. Did you know that? Unity is absolutely central We're going to see here in a second, when it comes to God's will for you and me and every other church that claims his name, his followers. And so if you don't believe me, look at what another prayer in the New Testament, this one found at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 15, beginning at verse 5, says about this idea of unity. You can't miss it. Paul says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we always do here at our church, because we're a Bible teaching church, let's latch on to the context of this passage so that we might understand it rightly. The context of the whole book of Romans is that Paul up to this point has walked them through truths about creation, sin, salvation, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, things like free will and election. And he's now gotten to the short strokes of all of this wonderful theology of what it means to be in relationship with God. He says this. He says, oh yeah, one more thing. And one more really important thing. Be of the same mind. 
And with one accord and with one voice, in tandem with each other, seek and glorify God. And by all means, stay unified. I want you to focus there. And that little phrase in verse 5, be of the same mind with one another. I, I, I put it there in uh, highlight for you, so you can latch onto that. Be of the same mind. It's fascinating. That word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in literally means to be unanimous, to think the same thing. Uh, the New International Version translates this phrase, a spirit of unity. Have a spirit of unity among you. And it's interesting. We know that it can't mean in the context of Romans here that we all agree on everything because in the chapter right before this, Paul the Apostle is talking about gray areas and the fact that the church then was not agreeing on everything and he gives us some recipes on how to deal with that. But his recipe is not you get to think alike on all these opinion areas. No, his recipe, we can do it for another sermon, was just to show deference, love, respect, and humility toward each other when you disagree. But then here he says, be of the same mind. And we got to believe that what he means here is that when it comes to the overall direction of you as a church, when it comes to the overall purpose of your faith in Jesus Christ, be unified, be together. It's so important for how I'm going to use you. And the logic here, folks, is simple, and yet it's profound. And from other areas of life, we're all familiar with the logic. We've known it since we were little guys or gals. And it's simply this, that if you're ever going to accomplish something in life that has to do with more than one person, if you're ever going to come together as a team, if you're ever going to come together as a unit, then you got to stay focused together on the purpose that you have as a team. you got to stay unified because if you don't, you're never going to experience the power of all. We've all learned that, whether in business, education, civic society, community groups. We've all learned in every other area of our life that if it involves a team at all, you got to stay unified as a team or the whole thing's going to fall apart. So as many of you know, I love, I love football, mainly professional football, but I'm getting into college ball nowadays too. And, and so I was watching the Notre Dame-Michigan game yesterday. Some of you might have seen that. Oh, wow, it was a nail-biter of a game, one in the last 30 seconds by Michigan, which I'm an Ohio State fan, so boo to that. But anyways, it was still a great game, and, and I don't get too caught up in that anyways because I love Jesus more than football. Can I repeat that? Jesus more than football for some of you. And so anyways, after the game, I thought of this. I thought, you know, for a football team to be successful, and tell me this isn't true, whether they agree with the play that's called or not, whether they agree with the decision of the coaches or not, whether they even like all the other players or not, they got to stay focused on the game. Amen? And, and they, have to, they have to go with the play that's called in from the coach and all move together as a team or they're not going to win. And so I was thinking during the game yesterday, I thought, you know, can you imagine if, like, you know, the play was called in by the coach of Notre Dame and, and that young quarterback, you know, goes and, uh, and, and, and calls a play in the huddle there? And can you imagine if two of the tackles, say the right and left tackle, were to say, now nah, we don't want to do that. I don't agree with that call. I mean, I'm not doing it. I don't think that's a good play. And, and what do you got? Ten seconds to adjust. And so they just say, you know what? Well, you guys do your thing. We're going to do our thing. Can you imagine if something like that happened? Well, we know what would happen. The tackles would do their thing. The defense, defensive guys would get in very quickly. They'd probably lose five, six yards if they're lucky, and they'd be a losing team at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, an, that's kind of an, an inane example, but, but you know what's amazing? Is that the church does that all the time. I, I mean, the church receives a call from the elders. A play is called in. Maybe the staff, maybe your small group leader. Maybe a song is sung in church that you don't necessarily like. 
And what happens is, is that because we're a democratic society, because we're consumer-driven in our orientation, we say, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like that call that came in there. And so I don't think I'm going to participate in this particular aspect of the game. Church people do that all the time. And what happens is in that moment, I mean, everything doesn't fall apart, but in that moment, please see, we've lost our power. Just as if you're not going anywhere on that particular play, if it was a football game, you've lost your power in that moment. As a church, if we let petty and sideshow issues, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, disunify us, then trust me, we are weak, anemic, and we are a losing team. That's why unity is so important. That's why it's so central to God's heart for his church because the vitality, even the success of the body depends on it. I love how Billy Graham once said it years ago. Billy Graham had such a great way of, still does, of putting things. Look up here on the screen. He says, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. When they separate, they die out. And I think he's right. I think that's a simple analogy that you and I can latch onto. At last service, everybody knew the answer to this question. Maybe some of you will too. Who here, hand raised, has ever heard of the three tenors? You ever heard of the three tenors? Raise your hand. Good. Okay, maybe about half, three quarters of you. It's going to go downhill as we go along during the day. Because, like, you know, we, we kind of go from Bach to rock before we get to the evening here tonight. And so, not sure the three tenors will be as popular in our evening service, but many of you know who they are. Jose Carreras and Placido Domingo and Luciano Pavarotti were three amazing and excellent tenors in their own right in the 70s and the 80s. And all three of them rose to stardom within their own right in the opera realm, being known as really arguably the three best tenors that our world had back in the 70s and 80s, if not ever. And about 20 years ago, somebody had a, a wonderful idea to try to bring these voices together to do a concert. And as many of you know, that concert about 20 years ago became an instant hit. And the three tenors took it on the road. And they became known all throughout the world as the three tenors doing their first concert here in the States in Los Angeles in 1994. And during this first stateside concert, the Atlantic Monthly was covering the event. And interestingly, the Atlantic Monthly wanted to know how did three guys who were competitive all those years now come together with such unity? That they were pushing and probing on that issue. And listen to the response of Placido Domingo to the Atlantic Monthly. This is so instructive for you and I today. Look up here on the screen. He says, you have to put all of your concentration into opening your heart to the music. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. I, I love that last line. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. And he's right, folks. We all know this from every area of life. When you're focused on a common purpose and a common task, you stay and you stay unified and focused, it pretty much limits the amount of time and attention and energy you have for rivalry with other people on your team. This would be a great phrase for the church today, wouldn't it? You can't be rivals when you're together making music. What's our music? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to define that in just a second here. But I would submit to you today that when you and I and every other Christian church, every other group of people that claims the name of Jesus today are together making the music of the gospel, then there's very little room for rivalry. 
There's very little room for sideshow theologies and petty disagreements to disunify us. That's God's point here. Why does he place such a high premium on unity and oneness? So much so that it made Jesus' number one request for his church? Because unity is core to the power of us all. It's core to being used by God as light in a dark world. It's how you and I stay together on task and while doing so convince a lost world about the God's love in Jesus. Now, I want you to listen very closely here as we segue into point number two. Music, when you think about it, is what bound together the three tenors, right? Uh, give me a head now that you get that. that. That was their glue that held them together. So like if they weren't singing together, there would not be much unity between them, right? So music became the glue that held the three tenors together. The question is, what's the glue for you and I? Most of us can't sing very well. That's why we have a choir. Uh, and many of us aren't very good at musical instruments. That's why we have an orchestra. So the question becomes, if obviously music is not what binds us together, we do all understand that, right? Music is not what binds us together. What is it? This is point two on your outline here. Look up here on the screen. And that is that the glue of our unity, and I've chosen my words carefully, are simply Jesus Christ. The glue of our unity is simply, meaning no more and no less, than Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Folks, I want to show you something mind-blowing. Look at verse 5 of Romans 15. It says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. We saw that earlier. Now here's what I want you to see. According to Christ Jesus. So how do you and I have the same mind together? How do we keep focused on task? According to Christ Jesus. And i got to tell you something funny that happened to me this week, which is why my kids precisely call me a dork, because I find things funny that, that other people wouldn't find very funny. But the reality is, my daughters in the front row are going, that's true. The reality is, is that when I was doing my study this week for this message, I found that precisely in this passage here in verse 5, where Paul the Apostle was talking about unity, the commentators all of a sudden start to argue and disunify over what it means when it says, according to Christ Jesus. Now that's funny. At least in my world, that's funny. I mean, the fact that here you got, you know, 2,000 years of rich theological history summed up in God's revelation to us about how to have unity. And he says, according to Christ Jesus, and the commentators can't agree on what that means. Now you got to believe that's funny. Some of the commentators say that what according to Christ Jesus means is the will of Christ, what he would want us to do. Others say, no, it's the example of Christ, the example that he set for us. Still others argue it's the spirit of Jesus Christ, you know, a spirit of love and grace that was upon us. Now, as I was wading through this, I all of a sudden read John Stott's commentary on this part of Romans. John Stott was a great Anglican minister who died just last month at the ripe old age of 90 years old, probably one of the great leading evangelical statesmen uh, of our last generation. And he argues that all those things are correct, and here's why. Because the way we need to read this passage according to Christ Jesus is to not argue for a what, an example, a will, or whatever, but but to see that it's a person being talked about here. That our unity is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ that encapsulates all of that. Look up here on the screen. Here's how he says it. He says, this seems to indicate that the person of Jesus Christ himself is the focus of our unity. And that therefore, the more we agree with him and about him, the more we will agree with one another. 
And so the person of Christ himself becomes our unity. And if you agree with that, then what our unity as Christians is found then is with anyone who also believes in the Jesus that we believe in. Namely, that he's the incarnate Son of God who came to this earth as God in the flesh to forgive us our sins, to bring us back into a vital relationship with God through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, and that by trusting in him and him alone, one has eternal life and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss that our unity then becomes a who and only by extension a what. Our unity is rallied around a person that we have faith in, Jesus Christ, and only the what is what helps us describe who that person is. I think that's a really important distinction. And some of you are saying right now, well, Jimmy, come on, who doesn't think that Jesus was a who and that our unity is found in a who? I would simply say lots of people. I told you guys before, one of the things that kind of drives me batty as a pastor is when I hear people describe their Christianity as an it. You've heard me say that before. I, I, I heard it again this week. I, I said to somebody, I said, hey, tell me about your story of how, you know, your faith in Christ. And they said, well, you know, I was, I was born into it, and then I kind of fell away from it. And, and then in college, I was more interested in it. And, and then after college, I came to church, and now I'm back into it, and I really like it. And, you know, next week I'm speaking on kindness, so i got to be really nice. But I'm telling you, when I hear that, I just want to say to the person, I don't say this because it might be rude in the moment, but I just want to say, what's it? What is it? I, I mean, do you have a relationship with an it? Are you trusting in it for your future? Are you hoping it's going to get you into heaven? I mean, the reality is our faith, please hear this, folks, is not an it. Our faith is in a person, amen? Jesus Christ. And he's a person. He's a who. And so if ever you describe your walk with God, please talk about him. Talk about he who loves you. Talk about he who is with you. Talk about he who died for you. It's a person that you and I follow. And Paul's point is simply this. According to that person, you and I have unity. You and I, when we meet somebody else who has faith in this same person, the incarnate second person of the Trinity who died for our sins, then that person's a brother or sister in Christ, and we have unity with him or her. I love that. The glue of our unity is Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. And some of you are saying right now, well, Jamie, okay, I get that, but like, why is this such a big deal? I mean, don't churches get this today? <laughs> Gosh, we really don't, do we? We really don't. I'm not here today to get down on the church. I really don't want to. This is a somber day where we're refocusing and reflecting on what happened 10 years ago and trying to rally the troops to unity as a church. But, but let me just for, for a few minutes here just talk about some of the areas that maybe we need to pry our fingers off of, of where we have found unity today that, that I think breeds more disunity than unity because it's so narrow and we need to transfer our allegiance to Jesus as a person. But what am I talking about? I'm talking about areas that, that, that are not bad areas. They're good areas. Please hear me say that they are good areas. I'm going to suggest you four areas of our faith that are good, but they are not the core areas that God wants us to find our unity in. For example, the first one, lifestyle issues. Lifestyle issues. In other words, values and mores that come out of our faith in Jesus Christ some of which are black and white, many of which are gray, that we need to be very careful of that they aren't the dividing line of our unity. 
So your parents' generation, if you grew up in a fundamentalist church or an evangelical church of old, were what? Movies, drinking, and dancing, right? Some of you grew up in a Christian church in which movies, drinking, and dancing were the forbidden three. And they became so important that if anybody was to do those things, then they couldn't be a real believer and you weren't to have unity with them. Let me ask you, is God happy with that? I think we've grown up as an evangelical church and we've learned that there are responsible uses of those things. That's for another sermon, one I don't have the guts to preach yet after four years. <laughs> but think about some of the things that we disunify over today. In my world here at Scottsdale Bible Church, I see at times homeschooling camps and private education camps and then the Young Life public education camps. And you know what I sometimes wonder? Is why don't we have more unity? I mean, honestly, it seems like sometimes the homeschoolers think that they're the ones who really have an edge on education and they got it down and everybody else, well, they've just sold their soul to Satan. And then you got the Young Life people over here, not picking on Young Life, I'm a huge fan of Young Life, but you got some Young Life people over here, they'll sit there and say, you know what, these people, they don't get outreach, they don't get what it means to be in the world but not of it, they're like the holy huddle. And I sit there and go, gosh, that's unity? I hope you're not sharing that with your neighbor. That's really winsome. They'd love to come to Christ through that. I mean, the reality is, is that we need to remember that we, we still today make lifestyle issues sometimes the balancing point for unity. Add to this political persuasions, differing views on war. We have allowed lifestyle issues to divide us. And here's my point, folks. Have your lifestyle issues. In fact, I'll say it stronger. If you are a believer here today and you consider yourself a strong follower of Jesus and you have not developed a lifestyle out of your faith, you're in trouble. My wife Kim is here today in this service. And I'm telling you, Kim and I have developed strong values that flow from our faith that we've imbued to our kids and to our family but they are lifestyle issues that we recognize come out of our faith, some black and white, some gray, but we don't make those the dividing line of our unity. When we meet other believers that have different convictions, we say, we have fellowship with you. You're a part of me because it's Jesus. It's not the values and mores per se that flow from my faith. Think of a second category of things that we're tempted to find unity in over, and this is going to step on some toes, but I, I don't mean to, but certain non-salvific theological issues. Well, what am I talking about? Charismatic versus non-charismatic. Differing views of the end time, whether pre, ah, or post-mill, or even pre-mid, post-tribulational. Free will and predestination. Uh, modes of baptism, whether infant or adult. I mean, some of you don't know, even know what I'm talking about with some of those issues, but some of you do. And you know that the whole history of denominationalism in America is that we've divided the church over these issues. We made such big issues out of these things. We basically say, that's that church on that corner, that's that church on that corner, and we have our act together, and they don't. I'm going to pray for them. I'm hoping they're going to be in heaven, and we call that unity. That's not unity, folks. That's not unity at all. That's you and I making such a big deal of non-salvific issues, albeit that some of them are important, and I have my own strong opinions on them myself, and I preach them as teaching positions in this church, but I would hope that we have a church big enough that our rallying point is Jesus Christ and, and that we can disagree to disagree on some of these issues and then take that into the community. And let me give you a very stark example of this about... Um, Oh, what it was, four years ago when I first moved here, I got invited to golf with this wacko pastor with long white hair by the name of Tom Schrader. 
And you guys have heard me talk about Tom since then. He's cut his hair since then. But back then, I'm telling you, I was at the Moon Valley Golf Club, and I'm walking up, and, and I see this dude walking up in these, like, Tommy Bahama goofy shorts and shirt, and he had sandals on. And this is like a country club, you know, and, and where I come from, you don't dress like a country club. Long white hair, you know, he looked like a throwback from the 60s. And yet I was told this guy's a very successful pastor in this area, and quite frankly, I liked him already. I just thought this is going to be a likable guy. And I'd also heard that Tom had a very strong theology in what we call Calvinism, that, that he taught regularly in his ministry, I think called Priority Living, that, that, uh, that, that Calvinism is the way that we need to understand the Bible. And if you're familiar with Calvinism, there's five points to it, and it's best described by TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And that's, again, for another topic. And so as we were teeing off on there, I mean, I got to tell you, I agree with Tom on almost all of that stuff. I tend to agree with him in his theology, but I just wanted to sort of test the waters in him. And as we were teeing off and talking, I said to him at one point, I said, you do know that John Wesley is going to be in heaven, don't you? And some of you are going, what's that about? Well, John Wesley historically was the founder of Methodism, and John Wesley was what was known as an Arminian. He's a, not an Armenian, which would be the, our, from Armenia, but an Arminian who agreed with certain forms of theology that, quite frankly, ran absolutely against Calvinism. In fact, Tom said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, John Wesley, who didn't agree with one point of your Calvinism, not one, he'd argue with the, every one of them, I said, is in heaven today, I hope you believe that, and, not to mean to step on your toes, but he probably is going to have a place closer to the throne than either you or I put together. <laughs> and I said, so how do you make sense of that? And you know, Schrader, I mean, uh, I just wanted to really like him. He looked at me and just said, bug off, you know, and, and just <laughs> said, let's go play golf. But I've come to learn that Tom does have that perspective. He does respect the fact that within broad Christianity, broadly we'll define in a minute, a right view of Jesus Christ and his atonement and who he was as a person, within that historic, orthodox, conservative view of Jesus Christ, there's going to be lots of room for unity. There's going to be lots of room for us to have theological opinions that are all across the map. And again, I even think it's even okay for a church to have teaching positions on that, meaning that's what you regularly hear from the pulpit. I'm going to declare some of those early next year as we celebrate 50 years. Nothing that will surprise you. Don't go around that. But, but to declare some of those, and, and it will be life-giving for us. But we need to remember our unity is in Jesus Christ. Add to this the fact that we tend to split over a third issue. We tend to disunify over church issues, forms of government, whether we're elder-led, bishop-led, or congregation-led. Decisions on whether we should build a church or not. I got to leave my last church when I was in Cleveland over the fact that we would decide to build a building. And, and he said, I can't unify with that. I was like, wow. I, I know this will shock some of you, but churches have been known to even disunify over music. I know that's shocking to you. <laughs> I, I know it's hard to believe that a church would make such a big deal of music that, that we would even disunify over something like that. I, I mean, honestly, I, I just, it blows me away. I didn't grow up in the church, as many of you know, and I think that's a gift in some ways. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. And when I became a Christian, it was just the beginning, Bill, of the worship wars. So I'm ushered into my Christianity uh, with this people arguing over music. And they're arguing over whether we should sing hymns or this new rock stuff and whether we should have these types of instruments or these types of instruments. And I still remember thinking back then as a brand new Christian, I'm thinking to myself, what does this have to do with heaven? What does this have to do with salvation? What does this have to, even, even at the end, quite frankly, as a new Christian, I thought, what does this have to do with worship? 
Because I'd been a brand new Christian, I'd been raised on Kiss and the Rolling Stones and Beatles. And I mean, you know, my music was the music of the day, though I'm dating myself. And I found myself in a little Baptist church using an instrument I'd never heard of called an organ, singing songs that were 300 years old. And I'm a brand new Christian. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that I said, you know what, I'm not singing these songs. I'm not going to sing those things. Those things are old. I think I'm going to take my ball and go home. Do you think I said that? No, I didn't. I was a brand new Christian. You know what I said? I said, how can I learn these things? How can I listen to the words? How can I bend the knee to God in these songs and find him in the midst of my worship? And all I know is that if a young kid who didn't know anything about the Bible but was excited about Jesus, who was in a fraternity, for crying out loud, at a secular campus but wanted to get more involved in church, if that kid can learn to sing hymns, then the rest of us can stop arguing about music, amen? We can stop arguing about that because our unity is not found there or, quite frankly, in any other church issue. It's found in Jesus. Fourth area is personality issues. We tend to argue over likes and dislikes, past hurts and arguments. In fact, churches even get competitive on which is the best church. You ever notice that? I hear that from some people in society today. You know, I used to go to Highlands. I like Scottsdale Bible a lot better now. You know, I went to East Valley Bible Church, and yeah, I like Scottsdale Bible better now, or vice versa. I, to, in fact, I laugh about how many people I meet that say, and they'll say, what do you do? I'll say, I'm senior pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church. They go, oh, I used to go to that church. I'm like, yeah, I hear that a lot, you know. <laughs> it's humbling, I'm telling you. In fact, lately I've been asking, what didn't you like about Daryl? And then they'll, <laughs> no, I don't. Because you know what happens, they'll say, I, I used to go to that church two years ago, and I'm doing the math, going, wait a second, I was here two years ago. <laughs> Gone are the days we can blame the previous administration. <laughs> That's funny. That's unity. That's unity. <laughs> but I do think to myself, I think our unity is not found in being an SBCer, is it? It's not found in being a Highlands church person. It's not found in being East Valley. In fact, one thing I love about the churches in our community that have gotten to know is that the vast majority of them love Jesus. The vast majority of them. Though they, get, they do things differently than us, and they might have different programs and different ministries and different focuses. Some are missional, some are attractional, some are this, some are that. But when I get with the pastors and I'll say, tell me about your walk with Jesus. Man, I, I hear things that endear me. In fact, this is a great story. We're running out of time fast, but you're going to like this story. It was a story told by Brian Bueller of North Shore Alliance Church in Vancouver, Coover, British Columbia. He, he says, one day an Anglican priest came to our church to talk with me and pray for me, and I wasn't in. He asked the secretary if he could go into our sanctuary and pray for me and for our church. She said, by all means. She led him in and watched as he went and knelt down by our pulpit and prayed there for 20 minutes for each, for me and for our church. Later, I discovered that his prayer had been that we in the Missionary and Alliance Church at North Shore would not lose the vision of A.B. Simpson, our denominational founder. He says, I laughed when I heard him pray that for the first time. I thought, you're an Anglican and you're more Missionary Alliance than we are. When I told my congregation about what the rector had done, their hearts were warmed and they began to love Anglicans. Now when our people drive by St. Simon's Church, they bless the congregation at St. Simon's. Oh, if we could have a community like that. Oh, if we could have a community 
in which we recognize another brother or sister in Jesus Christ, even though they might come from a very different tradition, and have unity with them. And say, you're just as much a part of me as everybody else within my church. And the only caveat I would give us here, folks, is that our unity does need to be around, now listen closely here, a right understanding of Jesus Christ. That's our glue. It's very popular today in our American culture to say I'm a person of faith. You ever notice that? I hear that a lot. I talk to people on airplanes and in my community and all that, and they'll say, I'm a person of faith. Are you a person of faith? And a person of faith can sound very good, but the question you and I need to ask is faith in who or what, right? What do you have faith in? Or as we learned today, who do you have faith in? I was on a plane a while back reading a magazine, and I wrote this down because it just so blew me away. A pastor in Palm Beach County, at a church in Palm Beach County, said this publicly in the magazine I was reading. He said, instead of believing in God, whatever that means, I like to say that I'm a person of faith. Faith understood as a basic trust in the integrity of reality and the worthwhileness of life. And I remember thinking to myself, what is that about? What seminary did you go to? I mean, I'm not even sure this guy is a theist. I'm not even sure he believes in God. He believes in the worthwhileness of life and the integrity of reality. Listen, folks, that is not where our unity is found. Just as our unity is not found in lifestyle issues, theological issues, church issues, personality issues, at the same time, our unity is not found in something so watered down that we say the integrity of reality and the worthwhileness of life. Our unity is found in Jesus Christ. A right, historical, doctrinal, conservative, orthodox understanding of Him. If you're wondering what that means, you can read our statement of faith online. The fact that our unity is found in the incarnate Son of God. God come in the flesh. God come to die on a cross for our sins, which is so meaningful because we're all sinners. God who was buried on the first day, raised on the third day. God who ascended into heaven and will come again. That's the Jesus that we believe in. And discernment is needed. God calls us to unity. Unity in His Son, in Jesus. And once we get that, here's the third thing, and with this we're done. The key to unity, then, is acceptance, uncompromising acceptance of those believers that aren't like you. Please hear that today. We've come very far here today. We've realized unity is absolutely central. We've realized that our unity is bound up in Jesus Christ. Now, there's some people that get that far. They agree theologically with that, and then they still do not accept those that aren't like them within the church. And that's what we have to apply. Now look at how Paul says it. After outlining all this unity stuff in verses 5 and 6 of Romans 15, look at what he says in verse 7. This is very instructive. He says, Wherefore, accept one another, just, also, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Don't you love that? So he's basically saying, okay, your unity is found in Jesus. It's really important to God. Now accept each other. And then, I love this, a little bit of like biblical guilt here. He says, and if you're having trouble accepting somebody, then just remember, God accepts you. And might we add, he knows all about you. He knows the things that you don't tell anybody. He knows those secrets. He knows your heart. He knows the things you're struggling with. He knows the things you're going to struggle with because he's omniscient and he knows all. And he still accepts you. He still loves you. He still stays with you. He still talks to you. 
He'll never leave you. And he says, now do that for each other. That's grace in the church. Do that for each other. And except for very, very rare exceptions in the Bible, this is the name of the game. This is the name of the game of how grace is applied through unity in the church, through acceptance of each other, especially those not like you. There was one last survivor with 9-11, the last person to be pulled out of the rubble. Tragically speaking, they didn't pull that many people out of the rubble. I think it was 30 in all. 3,000 died. Uh, Thousands got out before the towers collapsed. And about 30 were rescued. And and the last one to be rescued, give me a click here, was a woman, a single mom by the the name of Janelle Guzman-McMillan, 30 years old at that time. She was on the 65th floor. She was running down the stairwell, made it to about, I think, the 20th floor when the tower collapsed. The person she was with died immediately. And when the tower collapsed, she found, after all the rubble was there, her head between two cement pillars and her leg wrapped around a twisted piece of iron, her hand pinned under her, only one hand free, feeling water on her, fire beneath her, another body that had died near her, And for 27 hours, she was in that place, never thinking that she'd get rescued. Her first prayer was, God, may they find my body so that my daughter can at least have a decent burial of her mom. Her second prayer, because she had been raised in a Christian home but had veered very strongly from her faith in Christ over the years, had been really doing her own thing. She said that the glitz and glamour of New York City had just gotten to her. She kind of sold her soul to contemporary materialism, things like that. These are her own words. She says her second prayer was, God, maybe instead of having them find my body, may I at least get to the hospital to see my daughter one last time. And then she prayed a third prayer after a little bit of time and said, no, I changed that, God. I want to live. And if I live, I promise to change my life. I promise to live for you. 27 hours into it, she was rescued. A rescuer came and got her. She's written an entire book on it. You can find it. She actually claims that there was an angel before that 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 appeared to her. She really believes that she saw an angel, and and we should not doubt that. And she was rescued. And since that time of rescue, she's married her fiancé. She's had another child. She goes to church on a regular basis, and she serves at the volunteer phone hotline for the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church on a regular basis, helping other people in crisis. There were a lot of people came out of 9-11 that made renewed commitments. Some of them have stayed with them, some of them haven't. But my closing words to you today on 10 years anniversary of 9-11 is that maybe as we think about 9-11, it's time we make some renewed commitments again ourselves. Some of us here today have not had unity all that high on our priority list, and we've been thinking it's benign. It's actually cancerous. It's something that we either set the course for the future success of our church, or it will be something that keeps us stunted. I would love to think that out of this day, some of us would make a commitment to a renewed focus on unity, realizing that it is the will of God for us, that it's bound up in a right understanding of Jesus, and that we will accept each other within that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that on this day where we are focusing in a sober but also worshipful way on what happened 10 years ago. Praying, Lord, and focusing on those who gave their lives and their families, certainly on the survivors, 
and Lord, for our nation as a whole, that God as a church, we might have a renewed call to unity. Lord, we saw something, even though it might have been brief, we saw something happened in New York last year, or the last, last decade, that, that moved us when it came to unity. And Lord, we want now to hear the call you have for us as a church to be unified, not just within these walls, but with other churches that claim the name of Jesus. God, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that you tenderly guide us in the right way and even call us back when we veer, that your grace is that strong and powerful. I pray, God, that you might strengthen our church in the days and weeks and months to come through grace in the church that we might be all that you want us to be, the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, strong and functional. So, God, I pray that you would strengthen us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and his precious name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.